You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Is 2020 the year of Trump diplomatic success in the Middle East? That may sound uh, implausible to a lot of you, but, but the two major agreements that seem to have been brokered in part by the White House between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, and then Israel and Bahrain, suggest that there may be some kind of realignment in the Middle East happening right now. Or at least that's the view of some people, including the president, who at his uh, United Nations speech this week took credit for being a great peacemaker. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, uh, we are going to break down these claims. We're going to debate and discuss uh, how significant these agreements are and how much credit the White House deserves. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. Nobel Peace Prize, let's go. All right, weird Norwegian lawmaker who has nominated <laughs> Trump for the Nobel Peace Prize repeatedly. Uh, that I'm glad you're on the show, I, and I have a lot of questions for you about your immigration policy views. I am happy to be here. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, Alex. I'm joking. All right. No, I'm joking. Let, the, let the record show uh, <laughs> Scandinavian listeners that Alex's Norwegian invitation is not acceptable to anyone else here. Before we get started in earnest, and that includes dissecting Alex's bizarre Swedish chef imitation of an imitation, I want to ask all of you to go to voxmedia.com slash podsurvey, voxmedia.com slash podsurvey, and, and fill out a brief little thing, uh, feedback for Vox Media Podcasts from our listeners. We're really looking to improve all of the podcasts, uh, and we would really like your input on that. So go to voxmedia.com slash podsurvey. It would be super awesome if you helped us out here. Uh, okay, the Middle East. Uh, there are these agreements. The um, the one between Israel and the UAE is a good place to start because it was uh, chronologically first and also because it has the hilarious name Abraham Accords, designed to reference, of course, the shared ancestor of the three major monotheistic Western Middle Eastern religions. So what do we make of these accords, right? Are, is this like Is this really a big deal? Okay, so I obviously, uh, worldly listeners are probably not shocked to know that I have some thoughts on that question uh, about whether or not— Jen, Jen has Middle East takes, everybody. I know, imagine that. Um, but first, uh, I think we should probably just kind of go through what these agreements are substantively, just to kind of go over them. Um, the one between the UAE and Israel is more, you know, developed, <laughs> more substantive. Uh, there's actually things that they kind of say that they're going to agree to do. Um, these are normalization agreements. You might have seen them called peace deals. Uh, that's just because we're kind of mostly just we in the media using a shorthand to describe this because normalization is too long to put in a headline. Um, but, you know, these countries weren't formally at war, so they don't need formally a peace deal. But essentially, they haven't had, you know, formal diplomatic relations. Uh, so that's what this does. Um, normalization means diplomatic, economic, political normalization, meaning they treat each other like any other friendly country. So the UAE and Israel in this agreement, they agreed to establish, you know, embassies in each other's countries, exchange uh, ambassadors. Um, and there's also this whole kind of list of things that they want to cooperate and agree on, everything from, you know, finance, investment, civil aviation, water, energy, environment, education, telecommunications, like it's a whole kind of big thing. Um, they're going to, you know, allow direct flights to each other's, you know, to and from each other's countries. 
things like that. So it's basically just they're going to treat each other like they would any other country rather than, as has been the case, essentially, you know, the UAE pretending that Israel doesn't exist when it comes to diplomatic relations. Right. So, so the reason that that's so important, this normalization stuff, because it sounds boring, like regular country stuff, uh, is that there had been a, a agreement among basically every Arab country um, with some exceptions, obviously, but the sort of broadly united Arab front that you don't get full normalization with Israel unless Israel comes to some kind of agreement with the Palestinians about the creation of a Palestinian state. That has right. been the the official policy of uh, the vast bulk of Middle Eastern Arab states for a long period of time. And so the UAE and then later Bahrain breaking with that is, uh, from the Israeli point of view, a really, really welcome development. Right, it shows that they aren't being held up in terms of being able to achieve some kind of regular standing in the region uh, by virtue of the continued occupation of the West Bank and conflict uh, with the Palestinians. Absolutely, and then on the Bahrain one, um, this kind of came a little bit, you know, shortly after the UAE one. Uh, there was already kind of a scheduled uh, ceremony to be held between the UAE um, and you know the leaders of the UAE and, and Israel in the White House, and so Bahrain kind of signed on at the end and was like, "We'll show up too." Um, their agreement is more or less an agreement to have future agreements. Uh, it's it's just a one pager. It's pretty short. Uh, basically saying kind of more or less the same kind of things, though we, you know, we agree to uh, the normalization of, you know, relations, constructive, diplomatic, friendly relations, uh, basically the same kind of thing that though it doesn't list out like the very specific kind of, it doesn't list things out in specifics to the detail that the other one does, but same kind of things, you know, telecommunications, technology, energy, healthcare, culture, direct flights. They're going to seek agreements in the coming weeks to do that thing. So it's not like they've actually agreed yet. They've agreed to potentially agree. But in essence, it's roughly the same kind of agreement here. Now, it's important to note the, the sort of political context here before we get into to some, some more stuff. And I know we'll talk about it more later, but let's be clear about sort of two items. One, uh, we have an election coming up, right? Uh, there's a presidential election coming up. And Trump, one of his main arguments, or at least one of his main foreign policy arguments for why he should be reelected, is that he is a deal maker and a peacemaker. And so to have these deals, you know, weeks before the election allows him to make this case. It is one that he made at the United Nations this week. And it's a part of the reason we're talking about it now is he basically said, like, I had these deals, the U.S. brokered these deals. America is a peacemaker again, thanks to me. I am the peace candidate, uh, effectively, is his argument. Biden is making other similar cases. The other thing here is the countries that are involved in this, the UAE and, and Israel in particular, uh, have been really, you know, really do like Trump in charge. Um, they are have good reasons to. Trump has been very kind to Gulf countries, has made anti-Iran foreign policy, or at least changing America's foreign policy to be as forceful towards Iran as possible, short of war effectively, um, has made a lot of countries in that region, particularly Israel, UAE, add Saudi Arabia um, as well, uh, quite happy. And so one could imagine that these countries are fine signing some sorts of normalization agreements ahead of the election as a way to boost his chances in a similar way where Trump has given sort of Bibi Netanyahu, like the the Israel peace deal or, you know, ability to come to the White House and make some sort of speeches ahead of his reelections. So this political context matters. Now, are these agreements as like, I have let peace break out throughout the entire Middle East as he is claiming? Uh, not exactly. You know, I think it's um, important to to break down the ways this is and isn't an American story because the, the White House wants to be at the center of it and they are in a way, but they also aren't, right? So I guess I'll start right. with the aren't which is that this is not so much a novel breakthrough in terms of a like a real transformation in regional politics in the way that you know something like uh, Israel's Camp David Accords with Egypt were uh, during the Carter administration. Obviously, because Egypt and Israel had fought wars, that is a significant difference between Israel and the UAE. But more fundamentally, uh, this is like a codification of long-term trends in the Middle East more than anything else, right? So Israel and the Gulf states, uh, especially Saudi Arabia, which is notably not included in these agreements so far, but also, you know, the UAE to a significant degree have gotten a lot closer in recent years because basically on the enemy of my enemy is my friend principle, 
in terms of opposing Iranian involvement and expansion around the region. So Iran and the Gulf states see each other as mortal enemies uh, for the most part. And Israel is the, is the region's most significant military power. So trying to get Israel on board with your anti-Iran stuff, and Israel is in fact extremely threatened by Iran for very understandable reasons. So there, there's a really natural geopolitical alignment there, and it's led to a lot of quieter cooperation between the countries that are involved here. So really, the normalization agreement is just taking what has been happening in private and bringing it out into public with some more attendant public-facing benefits like economic normalization, uh, tourism allowments, stuff like that. Uh, now, would this have happened in such a brazen way without the U.S. giving it permission. So the difference here is not the U.S. brokered a very difficult negotiation between two countries that previously hated each other. Rather, it's whether or not the U.S. is going to exercise a veto or perhaps encourage them to take this public, right? And, and that, I think, is the difference between the Trump administration and what previous U.S. governments would have done here, um, which is that definitely the Obama administration, and I would say pretty much every uh, U.S. administration since Israel's uh, conquest of the West Bank in 1967 has had a pretty strong position that this the question of, of Palestinian rights and sovereignty is a really central part of American regional strategy. And so they don't want Arab countries to make some kind of separate peace with Israel because the U.S. doesn't like to put direct pressure on Israel for all a host of reasons, both political and strategic. And so this pressure from Arab states to say, you don't get normalization with us, which you really want unless you come to some kind of terms with the Palestinians, was a useful tool in the American arsenal in trying to get Israel to come to some kind of agreement here. So the Obama administration definitely would not have sanctioned this kind of agreement or wouldn't have been happy about it. Trump, basically because the administration doesn't care about the question of whether or not the Palestinians have a viable state is really, really happy to have this kind of thing happen because not only does it you know, give them some kind of election year arguments, especially in a world where they want to get evangelical Christians to turn out at record numbers, uh, it also helps them construct uh, and, and codify the anti-Iran alignment in the region, which has been one of their sort of principal strategic objectives. Wait, so since you, I mean, you guys are smarter in the Middle East than I am. So I, I guess my general question is, just based on what you said, is like, why... Why did it take the Trump administration to do this? I mean, it is as you laid out. It is an it was an open secret that countries like the UAE and Israel had these kinds of relationships. They were economic ties, scientific ties, all kinds of ties. It, everyone in the region knew, even if it wasn't official in a normalization deal. Everyone in the region knew what was happening, and of course, Israel and Saudi Arabia to a certain extent had these kinds of ties. So, like, what changed, or rather, why? I mean, if another administration perhaps could have done it and didn't. And then I think Trump administration gets some credit for this, right? I mean, I, that's what I'm sort of confused by. Like, the, the so the, op, the open secret is now open, no secret. Okay, great. I feel like Trump gets a win here. Alex, that's a really great question. Um, and, and I don't think that there's a perfect answer. Um, I think it's a confluence of, of a few different factors uh, and kind of trends. One is obviously, you know, as Zach said, like, things were just kind of moving in this direction. So the timing essentially worked out. But there's also something that you kind of have to understand when you look at, at Washington's approach to the Middle East. Um, you know, as Zach mentioned, it was part of kind of U.S. policy to to be, to have the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in particular and a resolution to that be kind of like the cornerstone, um, you know, of a, of a broader kind of strategy. Um, there's also the Arab Peace Initiative, which was something that Arab states especially, you know, Gulf states in particular kind of helped lead this, but they put together this kind of plan that was essentially promising all of this. It was promising normalization. And it was using that as the carrot to Israel to say, look, if you make a deal with the Palestinians, you get all of this from us, right? And it was very much their kind of own initiative to do this. Well, that stalled out. It didn't go anywhere. Um, and, you know, I think there's that. There's also the Trump administration's push. I think they very much should get credit for pushing this. Um, when you look at the way Washington has dealt with this conflict for a long time, there is a very entrenched kind of, I don't want to say a consensus view. Um, and there's a, a group of kind of a class of people 
who have worked on this conflict for a very long time, and they are very invested in, in the agreements that they have worked on, in the forms of diplomacy, in the strands of diplomacy they have worked on, and they see it in a very kind of specific way. And to Trump's credit, and particularly, I would say, even Jared Kushner, um, God help me, essentially came in and said, look, what we've been doing hasn't been working. Let's try something different. Um, there's a, a quote from John Kerry that's been going around the internet recently uh, in the wake of this, essentially to make fun and point out that he didn't know what he was doing, where he's speaking at um, the, the Saban Forum. It's a Israeli, Middle East, U.S. kind of uh, conference I technically used to work on uh, at Brookings. But he's speaking at this kind of conference where Israeli and, and, and Middle Eastern leaders and U.S. officials all kind of come together to discuss this. And he's saying, no way, no way will this ever happen. Give it up. There's no way that any Arab states will ever, ever normalize with Israel unless and until there is an agreement with the Palestinians. And he's like angry. He's like vehement at saying like anyone who thinks that is a fool. I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially the gist of it. Um, so so there's the fact that it was just very much seen as like this is just the way things are. It's never going to happen. There's one other issue, and that is essentially the full scale kind of collapse of any sort of actual peace uh, process between the Israelis and the Palestinians. The Palestinian leadership is incredibly fractured. Um, uh, there's essentially kind of no faith uh, in, you know, among the negotiating parties that there even is a Palestinian leadership to speak of with which to negotiate in a way that could speak for all of the Palestinians, right? Uh, the Palestinian leadership is fractured uh, formally between Hamas and, and Fatah, right? So you have the, the Palestinian leaders who run the West Bank and the Palestinian uh, you know, Hamas leaders who run Gaza. But even within like those factions, they are very you know, splintered. Um, and so the kind of essentially you have the idea that this is never going to go anywhere. It's stalled out. We've got to do something else. Um, and I think that actually helped kind of lead to this kind of confluence of issues that all brought together and the Trump administration just essentially pushed that domino over and said, look, let's just do it. Um, and, and, you know, there's also, well, we can talk about this more. Um, there's also the plain fact that, that this conflict, um, and, you know, the plight of the Palestinians in particular, uh, is just no longer the kind of, ha no longer has the emotional resonance and political resonance that it once did in, in the kind of Middle Eastern, um, political rhetoric, uh, for a very long time, you know. Arab leaders used this as the kind of, you know, rallying flag, the thing that would get everyone, you know, to kind of pay attention to this other conflict rather than paying attention to their own leadership failures at home. Um, and, and it's just not as salient an issue anymore for, for all of these other reasons in the way that Iran is. And so all of these issues kind of came together. And again, I think the Trump administration recognized that to their credit and they pushed. Th this really speaks to the question of how you see the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, in, in the broader scope of international politics, right? So there is a very, very common view, especially in the early 2000s, that was called linkage. And the linkage theory was that every other problem in the Middle East uh, was to some degree bound up in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So Arab authoritarianism, well, that's the problem that Jen just described, where you have a bunch of leaders who are staving off democratic challenges because they're just saying, look over at the Palestinians, I'm fighting Israel. Terrorism, well, uh, terrorists are motivated by Israel's mistreatment of the Palestinians. And so if you end the occupation, then you uh, pretty much uh, sap Al-Qaeda's, not entirely, but somewhat, Al-Qaeda's recruiting ability. I just want to jump in really quickly, Zach, just to, to support your point there. Um, Zawahiri, the current leader of Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, but Zawahiri in particular, they openly in their documents, uh, in their private correspondence, openly discuss the fact that you can't, you know, really get Muslims and, and Arabs, and, but Muslims more generally, to kind of rally around anything except the Palestinian cause. So they openly discuss using that as a rhetorical device, even though Zawahiri openly did not care at all about the Palestinians. They discussed, like, that's the one thing that will rally everyone. So let's just talk about that a lot in our, our propaganda, even though neither of them really cared at all. So you're absolutely right. Yeah, that was, that was just like a really, really important and I think at the time, reasonably defensible theory of how Middle East geopolitics worked. Uh, the problem is that events have shifted. 
the Arab Spring and, and more recently the Sudan uprising showed that uh, it is quite possible for citizens to rise up against domestic authoritarianism without there being some kind of Israeli-Palestinian peace. Uh, the or rise, without violence. Or without violence, right. Uh, the rise of ISIS it shows that terrorism has lots of causes that are entirely independent of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, grounded primarily in local and domestic disputes uh, between or, or state fracture, like in Syria, the Syrian war has dramatically changed what people are concerned about, and the rise of Iran's power also has, has sort of taken the wind, as we've been discussing throughout this episode, the wind out of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict sails. So the the case for it being geopolitically significant in the way that it was has gotten substantially weaker uh, in the 2010s and, and early 2020s. And as a result, like you can get two ways of thinking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And one is uh, the, the sort of classic left liberal view, which is this is wrong, right? Israel is an American ally and ostensibly a democracy. It can't keep oppressing Palestinians like this. The United States needs to push Israel, and if it's not going to budge, it needs to pressure Israel uh, harder and harder until it does something that makes peace possible. Uh, and so that's essentially a moral argument, right? It is not a strategic argument. It, it's just one making the case that this is something that we have to act on much in the way that we need to act on, let's say, um, other humanitarian abuses in other places, not to equate any of them, but just to, to say that's the structure, logical structure of the argument. And then on the right. other side, there's an argument, a sort of colder geopolitical one, that says, look, the U.S. interest in the Middle East is in containing Iran and preventing there from being some kind of challenge to a geopolitical order that is very friendly to the United States and the region. And look, it sucks for the Palestinians that life is like this, but there are lots of conflicts that we don't try to resolve and that we don't... Uh, you know, that we don't plan our entire regional or international strategy around. So we can sort of localize the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to being Israelis and Palestinians and then work on a variety of different other tracks to try to contain Iran and enhance U.S. influence in the region. And one good way to do that is to build linkages between Israel and Gulf Arab states and, and Arab states more broadly. And that though those two views are obviously divergent right in their sense of strategic priority but the trump administration they 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 aren't just you know foreign policy realists they have lots of other ideological concerns that play into their pro israel foreign policy but when it comes to these these sort of geopolitical agreements i mean they they've clearly adopted the second position they just don't really care about what happens to the palestinians and care much more about us strategic position Although, in, in somewhat fairness, I mean, look no further than the Arab League meeting a, a few weeks back in which you had the Palestinians chairing it, basically trying to get, you know, all the countries in, in the Arab League to basically say, hey, can we condemn these these normalization deals? Can we back away from it? Can we say that this, like, a, a further push will come after an Israel peace deal? And no one else signed on. No, no, right. Uh, like, the, the reason <laughs> that this can happen is because the Arab states don't care either, right? That was right. Jen's point earlier, right? It's just the salience of the Palestinian issue has gone down, which creates an opening for a new American approach to the region that, or at least the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that just de-emphasizes the humanitarian stakes of the occupation as if that was... Which is weird to say because it wasn't like that was at the center of American thinking to begin with. Well, yeah, I guess I just want to make clear that like and, and sort of emphasize the point that that opening exists. And and I think you're totally right, Zach, that, you know, the Trump administration's decision to kind of go forth on this does not really come from like some sort of looking at the map of the world and deciding the big chess game and like where things were moving. There were tons of considerations, but the opening did exist. I mean, you had uh, Palestine was so upset um, with the Arab League that they decided to, like, no longer chair, even though it's supposed to be chair for about six months. In a sense, you know, whether it was intentional, really, or, like, grand design or not, the Trump administration seems to have stumbled into a pretty big opportunity here to be still seen as, like, a player in the changing Middle East while simultaneously kind of extricating itself from it because it's building a somewhat coalition to push back on Iran. It doesn't mean there won't be further issues. And I'm sure we'll get into this later, but they're sort of two, like when you split, when you do actions like this, you're supposed to have a goal in mind. And it's unclear exactly what the goal is. Is the goal um, somewhat what I laid out, which is like to build a sort of balancing coalition against Iran and extricate yourself, which could be it. Or 
or and or is it to like put pressure on the Palestinians in order to then come to the table because you see that you don't have the friends that you did before. Uh, I would assume it's a lot more the first than the, than, than, than the second. And that's a bit of a problem, especially when this is being billed as part of the Israel-Palestine peace process. Because if you're not going to actually make the right moves to solve that issue, if it in fact, if you are in fact not making real strides towards that, uh, to those solutions, then this is more cosmetic, or at least it is actually a different focus, even though it's being billed as, you know, this grand design that Kushner and Trump have built and the new way forward on this long-term conflict. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get into our assessments of whether or not this agreement actually is a good thing or not on balance, which uh, I have to admit is, is that I have two minds on. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between so you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about the Abraham Accords, the much-heralded agreement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates on political normalization, and then a subsequent agreement between Israel and Bahrain on same. Uh, and so far, we've sort of been laying out the, 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 the background and the conditions and the, and the geopolitics necessary for this agreement to be plausible or to come into, come into effect. Uh, I feel like we've talked less, though, about whether or not we think the effects of this agreement will be, well, good or bad, right? Which is a very complicated question. I don't think any of us are going to claim to be able to predict the future so clearly. I'm just going to lay out why I find this sort of uh, difficult to make a judgment on, right? On the one hand, I think it is really good, just in general, that there be some kind of Middle Eastern regional order in which the legitimacy of Israel is no longer in question, right? I think that if Arab states start moving towards full normalization of Israel, it can reduce the siege mentality and the sense of omnipresent threat that fuels some of the sort of right-wing tilt in Israeli politics. And also, it's just sort of like on a humanitarian level, really good for the people who live in those countries, right? It's it's <laughs> it, it, the specter of Jews vacationing in Dubai from, from Israel. It's like a really, I think, uh, the vision for the Middle East that a lot of people wanted, um, but just sort of wasn't happening to the extent that people imagine because of the Palestinian conflict. And so like that's that's sort of one part of my thinking. And then the other part is, okay, well, maybe this will make Israelis come to the table, but it also might make them feel more comfortable just ignoring the Palestinians altogether and settling into what feels like a sort of status quo that many people said was unsustainable, but now is looking like, well, the Palestinians can just basically live miserable, difficult, oppressed lives with Israel quietly grabbing more and more land as time goes on. As anyone who's been to the West Bank can tell you, that is what it's like on the ground. Gaza can remain under conditions of, of siege and blockade uh, with, with some pretty awful humanitarian outcomes. 
And we'll get further and further away from a Palestinian state because Israelis just learn to ignore the conflict that's going on over there. Uh, and so then things get a lot worse. This is why the Palestinians have been so vehemently opposed to normalization because they thought that uh, support from the Arabs was one of the last cards that they had left to play. Uh, and now that seems to be slipping away. So like, what are they supposed to do now to try to get Israel from their point of view to the table? And like, I, I don't know. I see validity in both of these arguments. I see ways in which they could both play out. And it just strikes me as very uh, indeterminate as to how, how one should think about this particular aspect of the conflict. I'm going to reserve judgment, I think, on good or bad uh, in in sort of the long term, because I'm still like, as I alluded to in the first half, I'm still not sure exactly what this is for. My suspicion is that this is, a, again, a sort of a move to focus on Iran first and and push off the Palestinian issue down the line. Now, I don't want to minimize it because like other administrations perhaps could have made moves in this direction. And there had been a diplomatic stasis of on multiple fronts in the Middle East and something broke here. Something actually genuinely moved. And that seems like an unalloyed good and sort of on just that aspect alone. Trump administration gets some credit for that. And so do the countries that made the decisions uh, because those are somewhat brave decisions for Bahrain and the UAE to make. I will say, though, that the the sort of general trade-off that seems to be made is to believe that Iran is the most present threat and there are good reasons to believe that. And on top of that, there's really no Palestinian leadership. I mean, there is a name, but no one's super in charge. It's a sclerotic, you know, <laughs> the sclerotic leadership that isn't really making decisions on behalf of everybody. Of course, they're, you know, the Hamas and NPLO split, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a bet to be made that, like, you don't really have a Palestinian leadership to work with. Let's deal with Iran. Let's get a bunch of people to be friendly with Israel and form this front. And then we can push off the Palestinian issue off down the line. The risk that you take when you make that bet is that Palestinians won't rise up in this moment or anytime soon, that you won't see a third intifada uh, that could be disastrous, of course, for thousands of people in the region and and, and threaten Israeli security and, and, and all other kinds of issues. That's maybe the right bet. It is a moral issue, but not necessarily the greatest morality in that thinking, but maybe it's the right sort of geopolitical you know, foreign affairs thought that you don't believe there will be such a massive uprising anytime soon, or at least one that will affect or change U.S. foreign policy in the meantime. If that bet is wrong, if you do see an uprising that would be, again, a, a sort of cataclysmic event that would probably eclipse the disaster of the thousands dead in the second intifada, then you get the U.S. dragged back in. Then you might see some, some countries start to renege on the normalization deals, or at least still be highly, 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 highly critical of Israel, and you somewhat get back to square one. Not exactly square one, because again, something has moved and shifted here, but you sort of go back to the start. And so this is seems like a, a shot that you, or almost like a roller coaster that you don't, that if it stops, it'd be disastrous. Like it'd be stopped upside down. Um, you kind of need to see it all the way to the end, uh, but that seems to be the course we're on. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we had a conversation about this previously, Alex, you and I, you know, in which I, I essentially made the case that, you know, even if the Palestinians aren't involved in any of these negotiations, they still get a vote uh, in the sense that they are still, you know, able to make decisions and, you know, take actions that can throw a wrench into the process here. I think there are a few calculations going into this. One, you know, we saw, you know, for years and years, the, you know, U.S. presidents of both parties promised to move the you know, U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv. And, you know, even Trump will, he says this at his rallies all the time, that, you know, when he promised to do that, um, when he actually went set out to do it, that he got calls from kings, from leaders, from heads of state, um, begging, please don't do this, please don't do this. It's a terrible idea. It's going to cause chaos. And he said, well, I promised to do it. And so I did it. And when he did it, we didn't actually see that chaos, right? We didn't see the quote unquote, and I hate this phrase, Arab street, but we didn't see people in, in Arab capitals, you know, across the region taking to the streets en masse to protest this. Um, we didn't see, you know, huge major reactions from, from the Gulf states, right? Like there, it was just kind of, it happened and then moved on. Um, and then I think that was the first test. And then the second test was, you know, U.S. recognition of Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. Uh, again, didn't see like a mass kind of reaction to that. It just kind of happened and moved on. 
Um, and I think those two, if you're, you know, sitting in an Arab capital, uh, wondering, you know, can I do this? You know, what can I do um, in terms of normalization relations, in terms of recognition of Israel without causing, you know, one, a threat to my own leadership and two, you know, a threat to my country's positioning, seeing that there weren't those reactions, I think helped pave the way to seeing through that, you know, well, there wasn't a big Palestinian uprising, there wasn't this reaction. So there's that. The second thing I think is the question about whether this actually uh, does push Iran. Um, I think it is understandably the case that, you know, having a, a stronger kind of political orientation block uh, aligned against Iran is important. But there's also the fact that, you know, it's not like the, the UAE uh, and, you know, Bahrain and, you know, any other countries themselves are, you know, super useful when it comes to fighting Iran, you know, or, or threatening Iran. What's super useful is uh, the U.S. ability to continue to have bases there, in particular in Bahrain, the Fifth Fleet. You know, I, I think it's not like, you know, having the Bahraini military is like really going to change the direction of the, of the conflict, yeah. right? It's, it's not like, oh, Bahrain signed on. So now Iran's really going to mind its P's and Q's in the region. Like that's that's not what we're talking about here. Can I interject with just one question on this though? Because it does seem like the UAE, part of the deal was like, oh, they might get F-35s from the United States because they normalize with Israel. And if we start selling the most advanced warplane, assuming it works, uh, to the UAE, uh, wouldn't that actually like sort of help in, in that effort? This is just a genuine question to, on your point. Sure, theoretically, but it's not like the a UAE Air Force is going to be the deciding factor in whether or not we can challenge Iran. I mean, we're talking about the U.S. military, right? Sure. A and then add that in Israel. But that's not really what's going on here. Um, what this is, I think, in a lot of ways is a political and diplomatic isolation and just kind yeah. of a recognition uh, of, you know, that everything is kind of aligned against. But here's the, the problem there that I see. This could potentially have the result of, in some ways, strengthening Iran. And the reason I say that is because the, the raison d'etre of the Iranian regime, right, the, the kind of defender of, of Islam, the Islamic revolution, that we are, you know, exporting this Islamic, uh, you know, revolution, we are the defenders of, of the downtrodden and oppressed, particularly the Palestinians, those oppressed by Israel, Right. The more that you isolate the Palestinians, the more that you peel off one by one allies that the Palestinians thought they had, the more Iran, and to some degree Turkey, which is also important. I don't think we should leave out Turkey. Turkey has also been very resistant and uh, opposing these agreements. Um, but if you essentially make Iran the last kind of country that is seen, you know, or at least the, the most powerful in the region, as the defenders of, you know, of Islam or like the defenders of, you know, because a lot of the reason that the Palestinian conflict was wrapped up for a long time in this kind of broader um, salient feeling of politics and emotion is because, you know, issues like Jerusalem, right? And, and having, you know, a, a sovereign Palestinian state whose capital is East Jerusalem and having, you know, potentially Muslim, you know, Palestinian control over particular sites that are holy. Again, Jerusalem is a, you know, is a city that has holy sites that are holy to, you know, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. And so potentially, you know, you leave with Iran, you know, if, if more countries, if Saudi, uh, and I, I don't, don't think that's as, as likely necessarily in, in the short term, um, you know, Qatar, other countries sign on to this. Iran can then very realistically say, look, they've all sold you out. You know, we're the only country that has your back. We're the only ones who haven't sold out to Israel. And, you know, that could potentially be a very, you know, powerful rallying cry. Yeah, I mean, look, to put it differently, the fact that the Palestinian cause has declined in salience does not mean it is all of a sudden completely irrelevant to every Arab and Muslim person in the Middle East, right? It's not It's not like a zero to 100 thing. It's a gradation. Like if it was at 75 on a scale of regional importance and now it's down to 25, the, those are just arbitrary numbers, but I'm trying to illustrate a point, right? 25 is still significant. It still matters. You can rally a substantial number of people and use them to change their perception of you and your role in the region if you're Iran uh, on the basis of this kind of agreement. It just, I, I don't know. So, sometimes I wonder... 
And like, if, if the entire premise of this conversation that this is actually really important is wrong, right? What if it's just a codification of what has been happening for a really long, long time? It is very nice that there is now uh, tourism and economic development flowing between Israel and the UAE. And great, but that actually is not hugely significant in terms of regional geopolitics. It's just take something that everybody knew that uh, the Gulf states were closer to Israel than they were in the past and way closer to Israel than they were in Iran and a de facto anti-Iran alliance and makes it go public. And if that's the case, it just won't change the way in which Israel acts towards the Palestinians very much. It won't change Arab attitudes towards the Palestinians very much. It just is a way of saying out loud something that everybody knew, which is, I believe, a way that Alex put it early on in the show. And so if, if that's the case, if everyone already knew that, then I don't know, maybe it just doesn't matter. So here's the the thing. I, I, I've had someone, I've had people ask me this exact question over and over again since these agreements started happening. How big is this? How important is this? Does this matter? And, you know, I say it both is really hugely significant and important and also is not that big of a deal at all. And, you know, the second part of that is what you just described, right? It just codified what everyone already knew. But the other half of that, and what I would argue, is that in diplomacy, symbols matter, right? Symbolic gestures matter. This is a very huge symbolic gesture in a way that is has ramifications for for political rhetoric, for you know framing of the entire kind of conception of what the axis of resistance is in the Middle East, right? In 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 diplomacy, you know, especially in a conflict as fraught and as as long running as the Israeli Arab and Israeli then Palestinian conflict has been, right? We're talking about a conflict in which you know peace talks have broken down over the the width of the lead of the pencil being used to draw the lines on a map, right? We're talking about a conflict that, you know, has tons of cultural, religious identity touch points. And the, you know, the even just the recognition of Israel that it exists and that it is going to continue to exist is a massive, I mean, that was one, that's one of the kind of key uh, asks that Israel has in any peace agreement, Right. That's not nothing. Symbols are are incredibly important when it comes to diplomacy, and I think in this case that is absolutely the case. Right? It's it's a very substantially day and night difference between having secret kind of you know lower level intelligence officials flying from Israel to Bahrain to have kind of meetings and say like, well, we'll work on some things. It's very different than having you know an a, a Gulf Arab embassy sitting in the middle of Tel Aviv, right? Like. That's a very substantive difference. It's symbolic. And I think it matters very much. Yeah, just to put a fine point, I was going to say something very similar. Uh, my, my favorite line of Helen Mirren as the queen, and I'm now going to do a very bad British accent, is never oh, no. underestimate the power of a symbol. Um, right. And like, yeah, I just like doing accents. Deal with it. Um, even though they're bad. Alex but is like, canceled. And, ah, it's, it's a British accent. Who cares? I'm pretty sure you've done it on the show before. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've done a worse and, Russian accent. Yeah, that's right. For the, for all the reasons that Jen uh, noted for the region, but also let's be clear, like not that this is a, a totally U.S. story, but for the Trump administration, um, because it now gets to say after it, its you know peace efforts and Middle East strategy writ large has been maligned by us and by many 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 other people, now they get to point to it genuinely something that seems positive, and if not, is positive. Uh, they now get to say that they did something no no other administration had been able to do for a long time, that U.S. policy towards the Middle East, or at least on this section of the Middle East, um, is in the headed in the right direction, at least for the moment. And that matters ahead of an election. That just matters in, in general foreign policy. And it matters symbolically. And again, the two people that have nominated uh, Trump for the Nobel Peace Prize um, are not the, the greatest uh, people in the world. Um, but it does matter that, you know, for election reasons and also just, you know, Trump's own boasting. It does matter that he has done something or that his administration has helped to do something uh, in some way that gets lets him say, I am now sort of this big peace guy and peace is back. And America's foreign policy towards the Middle East is no longer defined by militarism and, and using um, the armed forces first. It is now a, a diplomatic space. Okay, so... That is a load of crap as far as like the whole regional analysis is concerned, considering the degree to which the U.S. has escalated in a variety of different conflicts. Like it's it's just a, it's just a lot. That's a lie, though, right? Like it is the case that he has brokered a peace agreement between 
countries that were not previously at war. It is also the case that he has escalated U.S. involvement in a variety of different conflicts, loosened rules of engagement in places where the U.S. is involved to kill a lot more civilians. Like, it's just, it is, what you are describing is not reality, and it's fine for political spin, but it's just not a reasonable extrapolation from these particular agreements. I mean, I've I've written about this extensively, that he is using this as a case that, that he should not make, or rather he cannot credibly make. But talking about symbolism, it is one he's going to keep using. Uh, and it is a, somewhat of a gift that I would argue that these leaders in the Gulf uh, have given him now. I, and I would actually, you know, you can see that. It's not just a, you know, a framing that he's making. Uh, at the UN General Assembly, you know, Saudi King Salman, and I, I mentioned this uh, on Twitter, um, but you know, he framed it as he said, you know, we support the Trump administration's efforts to bring the Israelis and the Palestinians together at the table, at the negotiating table, to work toward a peace deal. That's actually not happening, by the way. Not right. a thing that's going on at all. But when the king of Saudi Arabia says it, it gives it more legitimacy, right? Oh, well, that guy thinks that Trump is a peacemaker. Um, there's one last thing I want to say, and and I I want to be really careful here because we've talked a lot about what this means for Israel, what it means for geopolitics, what it means for Iran. I want to talk about what it actually means for regular Palestinians, um, particularly in you know in the region in Gaza and in the West Bank, but also the Palestinian diaspora for Palestinians who you know the tens of thousands who are living in you know long-term refugee camps where generations have been you know born and died uh, in you know in Lebanon. Uh, and in other places in the region, you know, where they went after the creation of Israel, right? This, These are very real stakes for very real people, right? Which is not to say that it isn't also for Iran and for Israel, et cetera. But I think it's really important to talk about what this means for the Palestinians and their, you know, aspirations for statehood uh, and for just, you know, peace and and dignity, right? I think the sole fact that you know, again, the more you peel off these allies, the more, you know, the Palestinians find themselves isolated. Now, you know, as you alluded to earlier, Alex, that could potentially convince them to essentially say, you know, all right, we've lost. It's over. Things are only going to get worse for us from here on out. We might as well sue for peace now, um, you know, and just accept what we can get. Um, but, you know, that to put not to put too fine a point on it, that sucks, Right. For Palestinians uh, who, you know, would like to have their own state and to be, you know, citizens and to live in peace. I think that would be, you know, pretty great for everyone involved to have that, you know, uh, that stability and to have those aspirations finally realized. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's also potentially could go the other way. And, and there's one way of looking at it, which is that the more that these countries develop serious integrative ties with Israel, it could potentially give them more leverage to then, you know, you know, once you've developed significant economic ties with the country, threatening to cut those off could potentially give them more leverage if they wanted to try to push Israel to deal better with the Palestinians. So I don't think it's it's necessarily the end of the world, but I do think, you know, one kind of body that's being left out of this in part because they've chosen to and in part because they've, you know, the administration has made it clear that they don't care if the Palestinians are involved whatsoever. But again, you know, they have a vote. And I think there are a lot of very serious questions that Palestinian leaders and Palestinians are going to have to, you know, be demanding of their leaders, you know, what do we do now? What's next? Um, and, and I could see it going a whole bunch of different ways. But I think it's really important to understand that this is still a stateless people who have suffered greatly and who deserve to have actual dignity and, you know, a safe place to live. And the bottom line is that these agreements do not accomplish that. And that's still an open festering wound that isn't going away. Strong agree. That's what it's the case I've been making throughout this episode. Uh, and that about why this this bothers me, right? Is the neglect right. of concern for Palestinians as human beings, right? As opposed to just like pawns on a geopolitical chessboard. Exactly. Uh, and it it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility for Middle East geopolitics that this agreement, which was made and born out of international lack of concern for the Palestinians, could end up being something that actually helps promote their welfare, like crazier things have happened in regional politics. But I think there's a very good reason why the Palestinian leadership has been so angry about this. 
it's totally understandable from their point of view that uh, they're not filled with glee about the prospects of like, you know, a citizen of Abu Dhabi going and hanging out on the beaches in southern Israel or whatever, right? Like that, that they don't care about that. What they care about is trying to get Israel to stop stifling their economy with checkpoints and stop uh, using a series of arcane laws to seize control of their lands and push them further into like a Swiss cheese Bantustan type situation, right? So yeah, if I'm the Palestinians, I'm angry and rightfully so, even though in the long run there is for reasons that, that Jen was talking about uh, a second ago and that I mentioned earlier in the episode, a possibility that this does end up creating underlying conditions under which uh, a peace becomes more plausible. I just, that's clearly not the intent of these agreements, it's clearly not the Trump administration strategy or the Arab states or the current Israeli government's interest. So it just really can best be understood as a, a demonstration of total lack of concern. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'm going to leave it there. I want to thank our producer, Jackson Bierfeld, for his excellent work. I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you all next week. So a big part of what makes Worldly worldly and, and you know the podcast you know and love, well, it's it's you. It's it's the listeners. Uh, we really need your help with planning our future. So that's why we want your help to make the show even better as we go down the line. What we need is you to fill out a short survey and give us responses that'll help us understand who's listening, how your listening habits have changed in the past few months during, you know, everything that's happening, and hopefully how we can reach even more people. Go to voxmedia.com slash podsurvey. That's voxmedia.com slash podsurvey. And help us make Worldly even more of the show that you know and love. What does it take to be an entrepreneur? And how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.